And went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. This evening we're thinking about the question, what is love? And when I saw that I was given this topic, I was actually really pleased. Because everyone loves talking about love. Whether it's romantic love, love between good friends, love in a family. We love thinking and talking about love. But I wonder what came into your mind when I posed that question, what is love? Maybe for some of you, you naturally think of Valentine's Day, the national holiday of love. But is that really what true, genuine love looks like? Is its meaning found in Valentine's Day? Is genuine love watching a mediocre rom-com that the guy really doesn't want to be watching? Or is it overpriced roses and boxes of chocolates, both of which will be gone in less than a week? I had a a friend at a university, and it wasn't university, it was at, at Cornhill, and he couldn't understand why his wife would want decomposing vegetation in their apartment. And I had to ask him what he meant, but of course he was referring to flowers. He just couldn't understand it. Now, not some Valentine's Day Scrooge, if such a thing exists. No, but I'm sure we'd all agree that this slightly materialistic celebration probably doesn't define what true, genuine love looks like. And we can't find love's meaning from looking at Valentine's Day. And the word love itself doesn't really help us much either when we come to try and pin down uh, a meaning. Love, a word used for all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. We can love God, we can love a person, but we can also love Maltesers, cat videos, and shopping. 
So we need to think carefully about what the true meaning of love actually is. Not some materialistic celebration or how we feel about trivial stuff. Well, today we're looking at a love which couldn't be further from trivial. Today we're looking at the real love of the Good Samaritan. And in doing so, we will see more clearly the answer to this question, what is love? I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this story, this parable that Jesus told, which we have recorded in Luke's Gospel. But as is so often the case, when we feel like we are very familiar with a particular Bible passage, we will all too easily miss its implications for us. We almost feel numb to the way in which this passage wants us to respond. We can think all too easily that we know it all, and we've heard it all before. So, with fresh eyes this evening, let's look at this account of true love. And there are five things we learn about love from this great passage. Firstly, we learn uh, that love is God's initiative. God, love is God's initiative. Here in these verses, we see an expert of the law, a religious leader, whose job it was to interpret the Old Testament law and explain how it applied to everyday life. And we see this individual coming and asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is a religious expert asking how he might achieve eternity. And have a look at your Bibles. From Luke's little comment in verse uh, 25, he stood up to test Jesus. We see that this is not a, a neutral question from someone who wanted to learn. At best, he wanted to vet Jesus. At worst, it's from someone who wanted to trip Jesus up, to catch him out. This is a question of eternal life and how it might be earned. And he says, what must I do? What must I do? But in the context of verse 22 in the preceding passage, this one, we see this is completely the wrong question to be asking. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 22. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows, knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. From this, we see that eternal life, knowing the Father, is a gift that can only be given by the Son, Jesus. Only the Son can reveal. Only the Son chooses. It is a gift and not something that can be worked for. So there's no good, there's no good work that we can do or evil deed that we can avoid to get eternal life. It's a gift given by grace. Love is God's initiative and not ours. This is a religious expert exploring how he might receive eternity. And it's in the context of Jesus stating that no one can know who the Father is unless I reveal him to them. No one can receive eternal life unless I give it to them. It's into that context that this lawyer then asks, what must I do? What must I do? And Jesus' answer is brilliant. Okay, you who seek to earn your way to heaven, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
the religious leader quotes from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Have a look at verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And in answering Jesus' question, he reveals his own fundamental failure to understand the law. The law begins with grace. As an Old Testament specialist, this guy should have known this. The Ten Commandments, the cornerstone of the law, don't start with, you shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. No, it starts with, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's Exodus 20. And that's how the Ten Commandments start, with a reminder of God's love, a reminder of his rescue and grace. God, out of love, rescued Israel. God, out of love, called Abraham. The law was always only ever intended as a response of love to the God who had already loved us and brought us into a relationship with him. The law was never, never intended as a means by which we earn sufficient brownie points to get into God's good books. That's not the point of the law. This lawyer had mishandled and misunderstood the law to perceive that it was his actions and his hard work that would get him into God's good books. What a mistake he had made. However, this mistake is incredibly easy to make today as well for us too. He's not alone in his beliefs, is he? This religious lawyer. Isn't that a summary of all of us? Of every religion, nationality and status. This is the creed, the religion of the world. We all think like this. Think that by our own hard work, we will get ourselves into God's good books and ultimately into heaven. Every religion will state this. Islam's five pillars, fasting, Ramadan, etc. Work, Buddhism and its eightfold paths, controlling your thoughts and actions. The Hindus and their karma. Even the Church of England have their rules, no official rules anymore, but the liberals state that if you're generally a nice person, then you'll get in. The secular atheist and the Bill of Rights, their own devised standard of right and wrong. Even the evangelical Christian and their code of conduct that makes them begin to think that in some way, on some level, if we try that much harder, we will earn our way into God's favor. This is the religion of every man. And as such, the parable that we see in this passage is addressed to every man and every woman, to me and to you. And if you're not sure you agree, then attend a funeral. If you speak to Clive or any clergyman, about the funerals they've taken, they will tell you time and time again that they will have heard that the recently deceased was a good bloke, they were a good person, i.e. they were good enough to cross the line, to be right with God. But in 1 John 4 verse 10, we read, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is love, that God first loved us. 
So we've seen that love is God's initiative and not ours. And we next see in our second point that love is not hypocritical fraudulence. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we'll explain it as we go through this point. Jesus tells this man, well, if you think your own works will get you into heaven, then go and keep God's law. Go and do it. Verse 28, do this and you will live. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly and you will live. But immediately on hearing this, this expert of the law begins to hedge to try and blur the lines. Love my neighbor. Well, who exactly is my neighbor? When confronted with God's moral standard, his perfect moral standard, and faced with his own moral imperfection, then the religious legalist representing every person only has one option. He will always try to justify himself. In other words, he will lower the bar. The Pharisees had over 600 clauses that they added to the law. Love your neighbor? Okay. Well, who exactly is my neighbor? It can't mean everyone, can it? Their business was to hedge, to hedge the law and God's moral requirements so that they were then above that bar, so that they could fit very nicely into their own man-made requirements for righteousness. And we see this most clearly in the heart attitude behind this man's question. And again, Luke's commentary is really helpful. Have a look down at your Bibles. Beginning of verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, to lower the bar to his own imperfect standard. And it is to this kind of man that this parable is told, to those who justify themselves by their own hedged version of God's law. If you were to turn back a few pages in Luke's Gospel to chapter 9, you would see Jesus sending out 12 disciples to proclaim his arrival. And they went to a Samaritan village. However, the people there, they rejected Jesus. And the disciples wanted to call down judgment upon the village. But Jesus told them that it was not the time for judgment, but for forgiveness and mercy. And in chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 other disciples representing the nations of the world as a symbolic global mission. And the currency of their message was forgiveness. Peace with God is available to you. Forgiveness is available to you. Now some received that gift, but others rejected it. Who would say, how dare you? Who are you to say that I need Jesus' forgiveness? And it's into that context that this lawyer then comes and asks how he might work his way into eternity. The context is the rejection of Jesus' forgiveness. The lawyer then represents everyone who has rejected that offer. And the reason they reject Jesus' offer is that they are self-righteous. They have managed to lower the bar to a place where they can say, I don't need forgiveness. And that's such a serious place to be. To the self-righteous, every man, Jesus says, verse 30, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. This parable is designed to reveal to us the hypocritical fraud who says, I don't need forgiveness. We all hate hypocrisy, don't we? At a time in politics when New Labour were really pushing the reduction of car usage, especially for short journeys, the then Environment Secretary, John Prescott, was caught out by being driven from the hotel where he was staying to the conference centre, a journey of approximately 100 metres. His excuse, my wife didn't like to have her hair blown about. There's something about hypocrisy that really grates us, isn't there? That pretense of truth. With this parable, exposes those hypocrites, those who say they have met the requirements of love, those who say they have kept the law, because it shows us the standard of love that we are called to. And here we see a love that couldn't be further from your garage-bought Valentine's Day card. This is a complete and perfect love. And this is how we are to love our neighbours. We get the full force of just how incredible this love is when we look at the details. So look at them with me. It's important to remember who the Samaritans were in the eyes of the Jews. The Samaritans were socially, religiously, and ethnically despised by the Jews. Samaria was to the north of Judea and had been depopulated and repopulated successively. Invading forces had taken the people out of the land, then filled it again with a melting pot of different nationalities, with different cultures and different religions. And so the Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans, hated them as religiously, socially, and ethnically inferior. Even more than Liverpool fans and United fans, these two groups did not get on at all. And of course, the first two characters we see approaching this man in this parable are Jewish a Jewish priest and Levite, respected, important, religious keepers of the law, highly esteemed. And as they approach this battered and bleeding man, a fellow Jew in desperate need, you can almost hear their thinking, can't you? I know I ought to help, but is this man really my neighbour? I've got a sermon to prepare, and I'm needed in the temple. My job will suffer if I stop now. It's a state's job to look after people. Someone else will look after this man. Is that the sirens I can already hear? And so they pass on. They leave the man there to go about their business upholding God's law. But remember, mercy, compassion, kindness, love are the essential building blocks of God's law. And these self-justifying, self-moralizing hypocrites, frauds who think they get into God's good books by doing things, when in reality they haven't even begun to obey God's law. True love is not hypocritical fraudulence. 
Where then do we see true love in this passage? Who does obey God's law? Well, have a look at verse 33 with me. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. From this despised Samaritan's actions, we see what love really is. We see that love is beyond us. This is our third point from this passage. Love is beyond us. From these verses, we see the answer to who our neighbor is and how we are to love them. And it's beyond us and beyond our human capability to love. There is no ethnic no-go zone when it comes to who my neighbor is. There is no cultural limit when it comes to God's law and loving your neighbor. There is no social boundary, no religious hedge. My neighbor is anyone, everywhere. And if we've seen that love is not hypocrisy and fraudulence, then here we see that love is merciful. Verse 33, when he saw the man, he took pity on him. Love is kind and thoughtful. Verse 34a, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Love is sacrificial. Verse 34b, he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now to do this, the Samaritan would have had to have changed his plans. He too was traveling on this road, presumably from somewhere to somewhere else, and it would have inconvenienced him greatly. But he was willing to sacrifice his time to care for this man. Love is costly, verse 35. The next day, he spent the whole night there as well. He took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you. This really is costly for the Samaritan. Not only has he had to sacrifice his time and his plans, but he's now willing to pay the cost of seeing this man properly cared for and looked after. This love is costly. This love is salvation to this man. Looking at these verses, we see that this man was in a dire state. He was, verse 30, half dead and would have certainly died without the love of this Samaritan. His fellow Jews had left him to die. But this Samaritan, with a love that was merciful, kind, thoughtful, sacrificial, costly, with that kind of love, the Samaritan saved this man. And don't forget that this love given by the Samaritan was received by one who hated and despised him, who saw his nation, everything about him, as inferior. And yet, the Samaritan still shows this incredible love. How are you to love your neighbor? Love them as you love yourself. There is no lowering the bar. It's not just your friends, the people who you get on with, the people you're sitting with. It's everyone. It's not just when we feel like loving people, when we're in a good place on the weekend. It's loving them on Monday mornings, pre-coffee, when we least feel like it, when it's least convenient. 
when it's most costly. That is true love. But don't mishear me. Because if I was to say, this is the life of Steve Sweet, go and do likewise, then I would be no better than those hypocritical religious leaders. This love is beyond us. And what this passage drives us to see is that there isn't a single one of us who loves like this. There isn't a single one of us who loves like this. It's important to recognize that this parable is told to those who have rejected the forgiveness of Jesus because they think they're okay. Those who think they've done nothing wrong. To them, Jesus says, don't be such a fraudster. Look at the law for one second. Have you kept it? Look at the love of this Samaritan. Look at that kind of love. Is that how you love? No, of course it isn't. No one loves like this. No one has kept the law. What must I do to get eternal life? Jesus shows this man true love, and in doing so, asks him, have you done this? Have you kept the law? Do you think you've done nothing that deserves forgiveness? Don't be so ridiculous. Won't you come to me, Jesus, for forgiveness? That's what this parable of the Good Samaritan does. It drives us not to love God and others so that we can be saved, but rather it drives us to Jesus for forgiveness because we will never, never be able to love like this. No one can love like this, all except one. Only one has been able to perfectly live out this love that we see here in this parable. And his name is, of course, Jesus. The question that has to arise from this passage is, was Jesus just another hypocrite? We all hate hypocrisy, don't we? So was this Jesus who was telling other people to love perfectly? Well, did he love people perfectly, as he called others to do? Did Jesus practice what he preached? Well, looking at this parable, we see that love is sacrificial, costly, given towards even our enemies, an unparalleled love. And looking at the life and love of Christ, isn't that exactly what we see? This is our fourth point from this passage. Love is exemplified only in Jesus. Christ chose by incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that human beings mocked him, ridiculed him, despised and rejected him, denied him, beat him, killed him. In spite of this, Jesus rescued us at his own expense and has paid in advance the cost of completing our redemption and perfecting us for an unimaginable glory. Christ's entire life and ministry is saturated in this kind of love that we've seen in this parable. But of course, we most clearly see it at the cross. When we look to the cross, we see a love that was merciful to those who were lost and hopeless in their sin. When we look to the cross, we see a love that was costly to the giver, a love that demanded the greatest sacrifice. When we look to the cross, we see a love that brings salvation and eternal life. When we look to the cross, we see a love that was given even to God's enemies. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, we read that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
Whilst we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's countercultural. It's sacrificial. It's so costly. It brings salvation to those who desperately need it. This is the love of Christ. And it is this love that saves us and offers us that forgiveness that having seen the requirements of the law, we so desperately need. But fifthly, and finally, we see that love is our response to this grace and forgiveness. Love is our response to this grace and forgiveness. Now we clearly established that we don't try to do this kind of love to be made right with God, to get into his good books and to be able to get into heaven. No, because we will always fall short of the mark. But having received this incredible love from God in Jesus, we are now followers of Christ as those who are being made more and more like him by the Holy Spirit. And the call from Jesus at the end of this passage, have a look down at verse 37, go and do likewise. And again, in 1 John, in 4 verse 19, we read, we love because he first loved us. Because we have first received this love from God, that was wildly beyond us, we can now begin to love like Christ loved. We too can seek to love with a love that is merciful, kind, thoughtful, sacrificial, and costly. We can love in a way that points others to God's love and the salvation and the forgiveness that he offers. And isn't that incredible? Because God first loved us, whilst we were still his enemies, we can now begin to love others in the same way too. So, what is love? That big question we started with. It is God's initiative. It is not hypocritical fraudulence. True love is beyond us, but exemplified in the person of Jesus. And having received that love from him, love is now our response to the grace and forgiveness we have received. That is love. But as we close... Notice that there is a sting here in this passage that we see in the final verse. Who was it who was a neighbor to this man? Jesus' question. The one who showed him mercy. This expert of the law couldn't even bring himself to say the words, the Samaritan. He can't even name the man. Such is his hatred and disdain. But it's a shock, isn't it? One that we've become a little too numb to because we're so familiar with this story. But it is a real surprise. That it is a Samaritan who is the one who shows love to this Jew. And that surprise should be a real warning to us. Remember who this parable is being told to. Not primarily those who are being called to love in a Christ-like way. No, it's to those who are self-righteous. Who have rejected that forgiveness, the offer of forgiveness from Jesus. Who is it in this parable who appears to show true religion, real love, having come to Jesus? Well, it's the Samaritan. And the real warning is, is that the most unlikely, unexpected people are recognizing their need for forgiveness. They are accepting Jesus' love for them, and in response are reflecting that love towards others, as the Samaritan did. And as Jesus' mission goes out across the world, the least likely are accepting it. Even Samaritans, people from Latin America, Africa, China, people 
from prison, people from broken families. People are coming to their senses and realizing they need forgiveness. And as a result, they receive the promise of eternal life. But to the self-righteous, the self-justifier, they will find themselves shut out forever. It's the unexpected Samaritan who knows love and shows love, not the expected religious leaders. And I fear today the British middle class is increasingly the hardest group of people to share the gospel with. So unready are they to see their need for forgiveness. I remember whilst at uni I had a course mate who said they were very on board with the Christian message of love. They love the Christian message, especially at Christmas. But when I spoke to them of their need for forgiveness, well, she was visibly offended. How can you be so audacious to say that I need forgiveness? That the way I live my life requires forgiveness? And there will be many who have grown up in this country, maybe even in this church, who still have not recognized their need for forgiveness. So this evening, let me implore you, if you haven't already, recognize your great need for forgiveness. Hear the warning in this passage. See the love that is in this passage and recognize that without Jesus, you are lost forever. But with him, you can know this love for yourself and begin to share it with others. Go to Jesus, the author of true love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. In him only can true love be found. Father God, we pray that in response to this parable, this passage from your word to us, we may all respond in the way that you want us to respond. That we may go to you for that forgiveness that we so desperately, desperately need. And from that, Father, help us to go out loving people as you love us. For your glory. Amen.